Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and the Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Gordon Kennedy. Gordon is truly one of the nicest, kindest, most dangerous, Christ-loving gentlemen I've ever met. He's the ultimate quadruple threat. Writer, singer, guitar player, producer. He can seriously do it all. I'm always a little intimidated because of my own hero worship when I'm around GK. I don't say much around Gordon. I just listen. All right, here we go. Thinking and drinking the Gordon Kennedy Chronicles. Good morning, Gordon. <laughs> Bart, how are you? Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. This means a world to me. Well, any excuse to get to spend some time with you. <laughs> and drink some good coffee. Yeah, there you go. We like that. Well, I'm just going to read a couple of things real quickly. And I'll correct them. And you'll correct them. <laughs> <laughs> you won a Grammy, 97, Song of the Year, Change the World, and uh, you're with Tommy Sims and Wayne Kirkpatrick, and this is what blows me away. I'm not sure this is 100% correct, but I think mm-hmm. it is. was top 20 for 81 weeks. Uh, then, yeah, the top 20 AC chart and billboard for 81 weeks. It was... Um, Number one it, for 17? Well, I was going to guess 14 or 13 or 14 on the main chart, uh, but... It, but I know that at the time it was a record 81 weeks in the top 20 on the AC chart. Man. Yeah. So So did that change your world? Of course. Of <laughs> course it did. I remember there was a brief time when we were doing our, you know, umpteenth interview or whatever it was that I was thinking, I'm getting ready to die. <laughs> I think I'm finished. I think. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, of course it, it did. It changed our world. Um, it you know, I think one of the the main things that happened immediately was, you know, you, you you went from being writers who would write and try to figure out how to get a song to a Bonnie Raitt, right? To having her call and ask if we would write a song for her. Oh wow! And so that's a relationship that is still yeah. going on all these years later. You had her last single, did you? Four know? of her last five. Wow! So I mean, but that's something that would not have happened, you know, right? Had, had the change the world thing not, you know, proceeded and kind of just busted some doors down mm. for us. Did you get to hang with Clapton at all? I got to spend 10 minutes with him at, at a after party. A Grammy party? Which, yeah, he doesn't go to him, I'm told. Right. But he came there to find us, and so we got to spend a few minutes with him. And then I would talk to him on the phone again six years after that, but that's it. Hmm. That's it. Uh, funny thing, right after the Grammys and we met him, we saw the next time he came through Nashville, uh, he's doing a concert here. We went and bought tickets, mm-hmm. had our tickets <laughs> in our hands, called his management and said, we bought our own tickets. Can we say hi to him after the show, before the show or something, you know, right. thinking he might like us mighty fine at this moment. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we were told, uh, uh, Mr. Clapton is aware that you'll be in the building. <laughs> <laughs> So it didn't change the world that much, but uh, anyway, but right. yeah, it was, uh, I mean, that's quite a time for us still oh, making man. laps around the globe. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Huge. I mean, that's gotta be one of the, 
Do you have any idea how many times that song has been played? No idea. Uh, you know, we were told early on that that was his biggest record. Yeah. You know, for him, and that's quite a catalog of music there. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I know that I personally went out back when we bought CDs and DVDs uh, and bought, I think there were, at, at one time, it was on six different pieces of product released. Man. So you know, a couple of DVDs and the compilation, this and a soundtrack album and, yeah. and so forth. So um, it was available on many fronts just by him. Uh, Babyface and Eric Clapton's Unplugged in New York. You know, he just guested on the opening song for the show and Babyface sang it. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I've seen Stevie Wonder sing it on TV, which was kind of crazy. Plus that song came about during the MTV Unplugged days, which was just that halcyon days for songs like that that were just so greatly done acoustically. Well, and I remember, and just talking about Clapton himself, my respect for him went through the roof when I saw the Unplugged. Yeah. And then he did Tears in Heaven, you know, as a single. That's what prompted me to think he might like this, our demo of Change the World, which was acoustic pop, you know. And so when I turned the song in to my then publisher, Doug Howard, and that was the first song I turned in on the deal I signed with him. (laughs) I said, can you get this to Eric Clapton? And this was just right after Tears in Heaven, you know, had been a, a thing for him and and he said, okay, we'll see what we can do. Well, that's not how it happened, but it did ultimately happen. Man, it's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Then you also, I see Mr. Skaggs, Mosaic behind you. Yeah. Which is still one of my favorite records. Mine too. You, uh, you wrote and produced mm-hmm. every song on the record? Wrote or co-wrote every co-wrote. song and then co-produced with Ricky that yeah. album. Yeah. And I was just, I was still listening to the... All right. Oh, gosh. George Beverly Shea. Yes, sir. How did that, I mean, first of all, how did the relationship with Ricky come about? And then how did how did you guys get? Oh, I mean, how did how did I meet Ricky Skaggs? Yeah, that I mean, kind of thing? him pr- produced, obviously, your record well, precedes you, but. Well, I mean, it goes back to when I was a student at Belmont, and okay. my dad was hiring me to come play on records that he was producing for Mercury Records. And he had signed Reba McIntyre to her first record deal. And so I got to play on her first top five single and then her first number one single. And at some point in this uh, point in history, she's doing a song called Small Two-Bedroom Starter. Okay. And I remember Dad saying he's hired this guy to come do – it's really not a background vocal as much as it's almost a duet, you could consider it. He's got this guy named Ricky Skaggs coming to (laughs) – to sing on it. And so I was there at the studio, and I was aware of Skaggs and Rice. Oh, absolutely. And so, and that album was like freaking me out at the yeah. time. And so I wanted to be at the studio when this guy showed up to hear him sing, and I, I was there. And as he left, I remember my father saying, Get a look at that guy. He won't be doing this much longer. Your dad said that? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, sure enough, he kind of, you know, at some point blew up and took country music to, to me, the finest it's ever been. Oh, man. It's, and it's not been equaled, surpassed since, you know. Um, the only person I think that could probably do it again would be Ricky Skaggs, yeah. you know. Um, it's just there was something about, I think it was because he was had roots in bluegrass and, and, oh, man. and felt, uh, you know, 
That was his Country Boy video was the first time I ever found out what Bill Monroe looked like. Oh, yeah. And it's like, this is a big giant hill yeah. with Mr. Monroe. And I went to see him. Every time I saw that I could, you know, somewhere close enough where I could go hear him and his band, I, I was there. Oh, yeah. It just was incredible. I saw him open for the Statler Brothers, you know, and then I saw him headlining at T-Pac, you know, and uh, a fundraiser or something for his fans out in Bell Mead. I mean, I, I just every time I could go and see him, so at some point when I get serious about writing songs and have a publishing deal and all that kind of stuff, for years, I remember thinking, if I could just get Ricky Skaggs to record a song. Well, um, at the point where he does a duet record with Bruce Hornsby and Lee Groich, who works for Ricky at, and um, out at the studio. Okay. He called me and said, you know, Ricky's doing this. And, I, and I'm sitting there going, I will try my best because I've yeah. always wanted to get, and I also love Bruce Hornsby. Hornsby's awesome, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so anyway, I put together, and I'm thinking, okay, he's doing a record with Hornsby. It must be going to be driven by maybe more of the style that I was, I, for some reason I thought. More you know, Madeline Ray. Well, yeah, or something yeah. like that. Anyway, I put a CD together of, you know, a dozen or so songs. And sent him, and my understanding is that from Lee, when he handed the CD to Bruce, and Bruce Hornsby and me and Tommy Sims were the entertainment at, at an ASCAP Pop Awards dinner in 1997. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I had told Lee, I met Bruce at, the, at that thing, at that dinner. <laughs> And so he hands the CD to Bruce first, who looks at it, sees my name, and says, well, these guys are pop, and tosses the CD down oh. on the table. And so I was like, missed it by that much, you know? <laughs> and so at some point, Lee comes back around, and he said, well, they're still looking for songs. And I said, can I drive out and meet you somewhere right now on a Saturday? And uh-huh. so I drove, I might have gone to Lee's house, and he came out to the car and sat down and I played him this song I'd written with Phil Madeira called Come On Out. And what had started in the writing session as being um, trying to get somebody to come out of their shell mm-hmm. morphed into a gospel song of sorts and using the the vernacular from the old gangster movies, you know, come out with your hands up. Right. Speaking to the soul inside a person. Okay. Come on, come on out with oh, your hands great. up. Yeah. Right, you know, put your hands up in the air and surrender to this, yes. you know, to him. And so anyway, we made it into a gospel song. I, I said, hand this to Ricky this time. Well, Ricky loved it and then played it for Bruce. And Bruce said, and I quote, how did he know what we were looking for? Wow. And so they put it on their <clears throat> duet record. I went and played on CMT Cross Country oh, yeah. show with them. And, you know, I was in heaven, scared to death, too, to get on stage with those two guys, too. Yeah. You know, it's like saying, I'm going to be the third boxer in the Ali Frazier <laughs> fight, you know. <laughs> and so I, I did that with them. And then some years would, would go by when Lee would call me again and say, you got anything for Ricky's next record? So I scram, you know, if you're a songwriter, there's only one answer to that question. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yes, sure, sure, sure. So I put together, again, another CD of, of things that I thought could be persuaded bluegrass by Ricky, but for some reason or another decided to put three or four songs at the front of the CD that in my mind I was writing for a Dogs of Peace record, mm-hmm. which is a Christian band that I've done, <clears throat> been a part of. Sorry. 
And so I I put those on up front almost just as if to say, hey, here's enjoy this. This is kind of where my heart is right at the moment. And I know where his heart is and just enjoy this. But then it'll be followed by the songs I'm pitching. And I got a call back from Lee after a couple of weeks. He said, I listened to the CD. He said, I love these first three songs on here, but I, I don't think that's what Ricky's direction is going to be. So if you don't mind, and he said, oh, and by the way, you'll find God. That's my son's favorite oh, song. Man. Every day we get in the car, he says, dad, you'll find God. Every day, awesome. you'll find God. He said, but I'm going to make another CD, put the balance of the tunes on there and give it to Ricky. Then two months go by. And I get a call from Lee. Well, Ricky never heard the CD that I made for him. He said, but he heard the original one you sent me, and he wants to do those first three songs. Wow. And so that's how Mosaic started. And then I would meet with Ricky, and I would say, how are you going to do these bluegrass? Son, I'm going to do them just like your demos, and I'm going to need you to produce the record with me. So that's how that started. Okay. Just on a, hey, I'll put these on there just to yeah. kind of let him know what I'm into these days. It's kind of the old right place at the right time, yeah. sprinkled with a little spoonful mm-hmm. of patience. and Sure. Man. Yeah, but that's how that record began. How did the George Beverly Shea... Ricky knows him, okay. knew him, and, and Dr. Graham, and we'd always yeah. talk about, you know, those guys and and two giants to him, you know. Yeah. Just, and uh, at some point, uh, we, we decided that the end of the record would have what became titled on the record it's the last six minutes of it's called spontaneous worship mm-hmm. and what we would do was we had done a song called that's on the album it's the last song on the record called return to cinder and the song. last chord of the song is a c made you know a add to chord and when blair masters hit the downbeat of that chord to end the song we said just put a brick on the accelerator and let it go for a long time, you know, cause we wanted it to just keep going. Yeah. So we ended up using six minutes of that as a platform to build what would be the last thing that you hear on that record. And every time we would have a guest musician come in or a choir, uh, the born again singers that came out, um, we would have them do some, just give them a blank canvas with the C add two chord in mind, play the pipes to skip Clevenger, you know, or, uh, you know, the, the penny whistle or the accordion or whatever it was that somebody was coming in and playing, do something. And so skip, you know, I remember specifically his getting this look on his face, had there's something I've always wanted to try. He played two sets of pipes at the same time, mm. just something he wanted to try. Yeah, and so we had the born again singers who came in to sing on "My Cup Runneth Over," just give them a chorus to sing in that key instead of the the B that it is on the record. Move it up a half step now and sing that same chorus. So we have that recorded. Anyway, what we were doing was we were cutting pieces of a puzzle that we and. It, a mosaic, if yeah. you will, to put together as, and it became spontaneous worship at the end. And none of them knew what they were, how this was going to be used. Huh. So that included also on the weekend before uh, we went to mastering, we drove to Black Mountain, North Carolina, and went to George Beverly Shea's home. He's 101 years old. Man. 
Ricky and I drag up a couple of acoustic guitars and take them out and say, uh, sing a, a chorus of I'd Rather Have Jesus. So we played guitar, tears <sighs> coming forth while he sits there and sings a chorus of I'd Rather Have Jesus, you know. Yeah. And then after we recover from that, Ricky said, would you speak the next verse? And he did. <sighs> and then finally we said, would you um, be the pretend you're the bailiff in a court of law and then announce to the room to all rise, you know? And so he, uh, something unique happened, but it wasn't unique to this record and what we were experiencing every day. There was something that would happen every yeah. day that would convince us that this was way beyond us. Um, and then in this particular day, he said, when we hit record, he said, all rise, this, you know, authority, Canadian baritone, you know. And when we came back to Nashville and handed these parts to um, Andrew Mendelson over at Georgetown Mastering, we tried it in between the uh, the orchestra, the little prelude that we had done, and in the space before the downbeat of the song, Instead, it's called. We put it in the gap first. We said, okay. And then Ricky said, hey, can you just drop it somewhere in the prelude? And the first place that Andrew dropped it, just and of course you're using your eyes these days as much as your ears to make yeah. music when you get the screen in front of you and the audio, the wave files. And the first place he dropped it happened to be where there, there were these two piano notes going, boom, yeah. boom, boom, all rise. And it was the, the tempo and... Those two notes fit just, like a glove, man. and so that's. But that was our experience with George Beverly Shea. Other than I had a picture made with him, of course, and yes. and I came home and I, when I put the picture up, I think I titled it "Gospel Music 101" because <laughs> he was 101, you know. Yeah. And I'm sitting there beside him, just like this guy. You oh know, man, what a gift! You know, Dr. Graham died. <clears throat> excuse me, like. Was it three weeks before his hundredth birthday? Okay, and I think he'd always I read or heard an interview with Franklin Graham, yeah. saying Dad always told me he was going to be a hundred, going <laughs> to live to be a hundred. Uh-huh. But he said he was pretty non-communicative yeah. towards the end and everything, and then he passed away. Actually, Franklin Graham was in Houston when uh, Doctor Graham died, and he said, "Oh, he didn't make it to a hundred. And his daughter said, "Well, you know, Dad, as Christians, we believe that." The baby in the womb is a human for nine months, so he did make it to a hundred. And Franklin went, "Yes, like, yeah, that was so great. cool." <laughs> I thought great. that was pretty, pretty interesting. Wow! But man, you've just had cuts, like you say, Bonnie Raitt, Eric Clapton, Don Henley, Garth, Chris Gaines. Yeah, that guy too. <laughs> that guy too. <laughs> and uh, it's just uh, you've had songs, I believe, in about. Ten movies, I think. I want to say nine Is movies, nine? but it, yeah, you've toured with obviously Whiteheart, Dogs mm-hmm. of Peace, done a Frampton. A, I've, Frampton. I've done some touring with him. A, a little Garth. I mean, when yeah. you look back at this stuff, I mean, does the little kid from Shreveport just look at that and go, "Thank you, Jesus, how the Certainly. heck did this happen?" Yeah, and I tell you what, it, it the reason. The one thing that comes to mind immediately more these days is I remember being a youngster and watching my father 
and seeing and hearing this, you know, he, I was, you know, he would bring home whatever he'd done in the studio that day with Roger Miller. Oh man. And our family would sit and stare at a couple of stereo speakers and watch a tape spinning on a reel to reel. And so at the point, and there was really never anything else I ever entertained the idea of doing with my life. Something in music from the time I was, you know, six years old or whatever, knowing how to turn on the jukebox in our basement, that I knew I wanted to do something with music. And then when I got old enough to really contemplate that, it was intimidating because of, man, look at what my dad has done right. and is doing. And, yeah. and look at these the people that he works with in the studio. Do I want to be one of those? Do I want to get in the room with those guys? Yeah. Um, Chip Young, Ray Edmonton, Pig Robbins, Harold Bradley, Buddy Harmon, Jerry Kerrigan, Bob Moore, yeah. and on and on and on. These guys were like, those were the Marvel Comics heroes to me. <laughs> yeah. You know, those, and the, it wasn't Spider Man. <laughs> right. It was. And then, and those guys would, uh, fortunately for me, that group of those group, you know, of musicians, that group would every chance they got would take me under their wing and help me. Yeah, you know, instead of what are you doing here? Right. So let me show you what to do here. You know, so I was very fortunate that that they were like that and um, showed me the ropes, so to speak. But it was still very a a daunting thing to think. Do I want to? Step into what the the industry that my dad is, yeah, who is a you know um, inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame, you right? Know? I mean, so to run down a list of records that he's played on, oh man, unbelievable! So why would you want to yeah. even try those shoes on, you know? But what I think about all these, and you just rattled off a, a list of names, is there's my list of names yeah. that I've been so blessed to have been allowed to be a part of their music. That's the next generation's Marvel comics. Well, and Garth Brooks, oh, you know, dad played on Elvis records and I've yeah. played on Garth Brooks records, oh, you know, man. and yeah. written songs for Garth and, and Eric Clapton and Peter Frampton, yeah. you know, um, Don Henley, I think he can write the song himself if he wants to. Okay. So I've just been very blessed and i and I, of course, I the you know the big picture, Bart is to go back and say, this was a calling on my life from the yeah. beginning. You know, what showed me that was having a father who's done what my dad has done, and that just made it more obvious to me that I'm on the path I'm supposed to be on. Absolutely. You know? And so it wasn't like, oh, I can't ever do what he did. It was I wasn't supposed to do exactly what he did. I was supposed to do what I'm doing. But but that was what put me on that path, you know. It is interesting. I was my wife Amy worked at Universal Publishing, which had Waylon at the beginning, and then it had Shooter. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Will you come to this party for Shooter Jennings?" Because I don't, you know, I don't know any of these guys. I said, "Sure." So I went over there and was standing next to Shooter. And I worked with Waylon when I was at RCA. Huge, huge fan of Waylon Jennings. And Shooter's got a forty-five tattooed on the inside of his forearm, and he had a glass of whiskey and a cigarette in one hand and a beer in the other hand. And I just looked at my wife and I said, it's got to be difficult to mm. try to out Waylon Waylon. <laughs> yeah. Because when you know some of the stories that I've heard that are nothing compared to what he's actually achieved, and, and, and like you say, it's pretty daunting yeah. when you're trying to come up 
it, as a studio guy, as a producer, when your dad was a huge studio guy and producer, I mean, that's, that's pretty scary stuff. And yeah. I guess you just have to go, well, that's what he did, and this is what I'm doing. Yeah. And we're not the same guy. Right. So off we go. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been in the Bluebird when the son of a famous, now deceased, singer-songwriter that was huge got up, and I remember thinking, well, this is going to be great. No. It wasn't, yeah. you know, it wasn't. So it's not always yeah. the case, you know, that you you find. And again, to me, it goes back to the the calling. Yeah. You know, I got to share with Belmont students this past beginning of the last, this most recent school year at Convocation that said, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called, hmm. you know, so... Uh, it's not like, you know, God's got some book. He opens it up and says, I need somebody with a Martin and a bag's pickup. And I, you know, <laughs> right. is it a Sunburst Martin or is it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so it's it's more like I've answered a calling that's on my life. And I've seen over the years how I've been equipped yeah. to keep answering this call. You know, this and a guitar does find its way into my hands from time to time. Um, of course, my father has guitars that he's permanently loaned me, you know. Right if not given to me, and he will say he's given them to me, but I say they're yours, yeah. you know, they're his. Um, but, I, you know, in, in answering the call, you know, I've seen, I've witnessed it for my entire life that I keep having things happen that show me I'm to continue to do this. Absolutely. You know? And so I think if I wasn't supposed to be doing this, I would have faced meet the dirt a long time ago, yeah. you know, and, but that's not how it's been, you know, uh, I've just, like I said, been very blessed, but also consequently I get asked to do a lot of stuff, which that's another way, you know, it's a calling. You get called all the time, right? <laughs> but I get asked to do a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of benefits and, and different things. And so I always say yes. Um, because once again, you know, it's like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what my skill set is. Yeah. And how can I be used? And, and the minute I think this is all beneath me or something like that, then I think maybe I would see some drastic changes. Yeah, uh, that wouldn't be good. So I, I, anyway, I, I can go off and keep talking about oh, that. Sure. But I'd rather keep answering your questions. Well, so goodness, keep steering me, Bart. Uh, Peter Frampton's fingerprints. That was the first album you. Worked with him on is that no right? actually oh, that the actually one? there that was the second okay. record there was a, a record called now oh that's right that was that's before right. that when we've been working together for two or three years when when we worked on that one and then at some point he decided to do an instrumental record um, and it won a Grammy for best yeah. pop instrumental album and his first Grammy really? which is fitting because he won it for being. A musician, musician, which yeah. is what he's always wanted to be. He always just wanted to be the guitar player, and of course, you know things uh, tugged at him and put him, you know, on magazine covers, shirt open down to here, and all this kind of stuff. And so, he it, that part of what he wanted to do kind of got away from him for a while. And but it was so great to be uh, on on a project where he finally got recognized for what he is and has always wanted to be recognized for. I think I asked you one time, is he really as good a guitar player as we all think? And you said, Bart, because that's what you call me. <laughs> yeah. He said, in his solo every night, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
he has a piece he starts out with, there's kind of a middle section, and then there's kind of an ending. And in between those three sections, he never plays the same thing oh, twice. Oh, no. And it was always before While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Okay. That's when he would take a moment to just play the guitar, and some nights it would be 60 seconds, some nights it might be two or three minutes, and then starts the George Harrison song. And every night, it was something different, and it was a masterpiece. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, he's just one of those guys where I would say that's his first language. The King's English is his second. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, uh, that's difficult. My, my vocabulary is very limited. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I would say you don't have to have a huge vocabulary if what you're saying is spoken in B.B. King. <laughs> right. True. I have BB King's English. Yes, yes, the BB King. <laughs> I have been called one of the best guitar holders, <laughs> certified and, guitar holder. Yes, I, yeah, I've called myself that when Jerry Reed was in the room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I've, uh, I've, I was told by Big Al Anderson, I'm one of the best guitar owners. He's a permit. Oh, remind me to tell you my Al story after we turned the machine off. Oh my gosh, yeah, Jerry Reed. There's another. Scary mm-hmm. guitar player, but you you went to high school with his daughter, yeah, and so you've known. Yeah, I, the, my, the first dance I ever went to danced was a, a homecoming <laughs> dance when I was a freshman, and well, no, I'm yeah, that freshman year prom is what I should say, where you had to, it was tux, you know, and went with Sedina, Jerry's daughter. Mm. I mean, you know, I grew up knowing them, and, yeah, and uh, her. Sedina's mom, Prissy, Jerry's wife, taught me how to jitterbug, you know, and, and, um, they, you know, of course, dad, in the early days at Mercury Records, it was him and Jerry Reed and Ray Stevens. And oh, man. Those guys were, you know, in the studio all the time. Uh, for a few minutes, they might be in the office there on 16th. But I mean, what a, what a way to sort of, yeah, birth your existence and, and, part of being a pioneer to what Nashville has become. Man, I go downtown Music Row about maybe once a month now, and it's like, I remember what used to be there, and I oh, remember yeah. what used to be there, yeah. and I wrote in the building that used to be there, and it's, <laughs> now there are high-rises and That's right. pay parking lots. It's kind of sad. Yeah, I, I it is. Like, it is. These young people that are coming to town to try to be writers now, I just go, man, I'm not trying to be uh, – you know, right. I used to walk to school uphill both ways. Right. I'm not trying to be that guy, but it's like, man, you, you really don't realize what it was like to walk into a building, look in a writer's room, and there's Waylon and Randy Van Warmer writing together or what or whoever, you know, and you just My go. dad's first assignment when he was hired by Shelby Singleton, who, who was the first to run a Mercury Records Nashville mm-hmm. office, I think maybe I can't remember what year it was. Early '60s, early, real, yeah, like '61. I think at some point, Dad would become head of Mercury Nashville. Right. But he was working for Shelby Singleton, and my dad told me that uh, the way they did pitch meetings back then was to go and meet with the writers, and maybe the writers would play in front of a bunch of you know A and R people or something, mm-hmm. that, but pass the guitar around. You know, it was like a, a, a writers in the round thing right. before it was before it was of, cool. Yeah. But he said he got sent to a hotel to listen to songs played by four songwriters pitching songs for Mercury artists, right? <laughs> and they were? Harlan Howard, <laughs> Hank Cochran, Roger Miller, 
and Willie Nelson. <laughs> Those were the writers trying to get songs cut. It's like, here we are at Mount Rushmore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're yeah. Hear exactly, some country songs. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, mm. that's how my dad, you know, first heard songs being played. And, of course, yeah. he would end up signing Roger as an artist to Mercury in 60, late 63 or something and doing his Mercury stuff. Yeah, I've... Uh Pal around and written a bunch with Roger's son, Dean. Yeah. And he's got so many great stories about like Roger's publishing deal was up like midnight tonight. He mm-hmm. had to hand so he went to his publisher. I don't even remember who it was now. I shouldn't even have started the story, but his publisher said, Well, you owe us like eleven songs by tomorrow, or we're not gonna give you any more money. He was like a janitor or something at the time. So the next morning he came in and handed him 11 songs that he had written by himself the night <laughs> before. And some of them were, you know, you can't roller skate in a buffalo herd and all that. It's like, how do you? You know, I think the thing about Roger and the stories I've heard about him, and I only met him twice in those years, you know, when I was a little kid and I met him again when I was grown up. But the thing about him was, for him to write songs, he just needed to pick up a pencil. That stuff was always flying through his mind. <laughs> yeah. It's just a matter of just, let me yeah. capture this, let me capture this, <laughs> let me capture this. And then he seemed to think that way from mm-hmm. what I've, all the stories I've heard and just his way he would speak every day. Mm, that's crazy. Genius. Well, so it's, this probably sounds very redundant, but how did you get into Nashville music business? I mean, did you do any of the music writing and playing stuff on your own, or was it with Dad's help, or was it a combination uh, of both? Well, I mean, you know, the thing, you know, I remember being young enough to think that everybody's dad did the same thing sure. my dad did, and then realizing that no, they didn't. The kid across the street's dad was an Eastern Airlines pilot, and yeah, you know, all these different. So I re- okay, Dad's doing something that, that's different, you know, unique to him, and. So I was always in eyes and ears on what my dad was doing from the time I can remember. Yeah. From the time I can remember, my participation in it might, you know, be, I remember, okay, I remember Christmas one year where my dad gave me and the second brother, Brian, Silvertone, the proverbial Silvertone acoustic guitar with Indeed. the cardboard case, you yes. know. Yes. Strings and, about three quarters of an inch oh, off yeah, the fretboard. Yeah, it looked yeah. like something Jerry Douglas could play. But, <laughs> um, but it was uh, you know we were so young. Brian couldn't, and he's a year and a half younger than me. He couldn't even put his guitar in the case. He was putting the butt end of the guitar in the neck end of the case. <laughs> we were that little, you know. Right. So I think Dad just thought I'm going to give my kids guitars, you know. And then we would get a set of uh, Decca acoustic guitars. Some years later, but even those guitars went into the closet without cases with Major Matt Masons and the G.I. Joes and, <laughs> and every all the other toys. And yes. So they were just toys. And then I remember probably when I was about maybe 9, 10, or 11, well, okay, George Harrison's All Things Must Pass record came out. Okay. So I grabbed this little three-quarter size guitar uh, gut string of my dad's, which those strings felt friendly enough to the fingertips, and I was learning songs, just playing along with songs on that record. Not the complicated ones. Right. I'm talking like Apple Scruffs, you know. It was like seeming, I think it was like two or three chords or something. But um, then I would, you know, go and get a fun with guitar, Mel Bay. All the while, I'm not going to ask my dad to, right. play, to teach me how to play the guitar. And then I remember at some point going back to Gillisville where we lived with those kids on the dead end on Green Acres Court. And... The kid across the street, whose dad was the Eastern Airlines pilot, 
was paying for my friend Scott to get guitar lessons. Well, I came home bummed. I should know how to play the guitar. My dad's an actual guitar player, right. you know? And so <laughs> I remember saying, you know, being mad about it or whatever. And I remember my grandmother and my mom being in the room with me. And they told me this. They reminded me of this when I was years older. But I said that they, what's wrong? Well, you know, Scott's daddy's getting him guitar lessons. Well, why don't you get your daddy to teach you guitar? You know, he's a guitar player. He won't teach me, I said. And they said, why not? He wants to be the best dang guitar picker in the world. <laughs> I said, I said that? Yeah, you said that. I was like, oh. That's great. So I just thought, um, I never wanted to ask my dad. You know, I remember, I can remember asking him one, maybe two guitar-oriented questions growing up. But the thing that my dad gave me that, that you know, where else would you get would be access to the music and access uh-huh. to the guitars and the amplifiers and, and a jukebox that played 45s, an upright piano on the wall, which is actually what I learned to play. The first song I ever learned to play, I was seven years old, Stand By Me. Uh. I learned how to play that on the piano. And I can't remember if he taught me a couple of the yeah. things. But I learned how to play that first before moving to the guitars. And um, But just, you know, and then also with Mercury Records, and his relationship with Mercury over the years, there would be a box of every piece of product right. that Mercury would, and the subsidiary labels, Smash, Phillips. There were, I mean, I can't remember all the names. Would Those come Polydor, Polydor. Yeah, they would all come to yeah. the house, and me and my brothers would tear into that like soldiers right. getting letters from home, you know. <laughs> And go off to I'd go off to my room with Bachman Turner Overdrive and Rush and Rod Stewart. Every picture tells a story, and, there, and some of these records were like the pivotal staples in my. Oh man, yeah. I, I'd look at now what would be the Desert Island list or whatever, and every picture tells a story would be one for sure. Mickey Newberry looks like rain oh, was another man, record yeah. that Dad brought home. I just what he brought home was like food. Like yeah, he was bringing home food for me and. And so I was always immersed fully in that environment, you know, of instruments and music being played, real, real tapes spinning the, all the time. That's all I remember. And you were hearing so much music that wasn't on the radio either. Oh, and he, and I remember from here to Gatlinburg, it would be Little Richard, Fats Domino, hits of the 50s. And of course, mom was into R&B, so it'd be Aretha, Otis, uh, Redding, uh, Sam and Dave, and Junior Walker and the All-Stars. So... This is constantly going on around me. And then, of course, Dad brought home the first Meet the Beatles. Right. So if you take Lennon and McCartney and George Harrison and then bookend that with Roger Miller yeah. as, as for influences that would surface years later when I'm trying to write my own songs, you know, those these all were heavy, heavy things. And as far as the business end of it goes, I got an opportunity the summer after my junior year in high school, Dad let me come down and and do an overdub on two songs for Johnny Rodriguez. Mm. So I got a taste of playing on a record, you know, and then would start doing more work for him when I was at Belmont as a student. Uh, Reba McIntyre, Becky Hobbs, Jackie Ward, um, playing on some things for him, and getting to sit with the best that's ever been in Nashville, you know, players, other players. Fortunately for me, and I've said this many times, but – the first time I went to do a tracking date where the other musicians were there and I was scared out of my mind, God saw fit to sit me next to Chip Young, you know, and he could not have been kinder yeah. and more helpful. And 
I gave him some, you know, years and years later, I have a studio sitting behind us right here that he wondered if he could pay for to use to make his, what it would end up being his last thumb picking instrumental record. I said, you can't pay me for it. It's yours, you know? And, and so, uh, Hmm. But I mean, just those those kinds of uh, people were who I fortunately got thrown into the room with, and it was just um, it couldn't have been better. Yeah. You know? But anyway, that's sort of where I got. And then I, I would always, in the back of my mind, think about writing songs. Um, but I wasn't as serious about it as I should have been early on. It was sort of the afterthought, even to the point of where my first. Hundred songs I wrote were probably because I had a guitar part I wanted to play, and sure. if I sling a song around it, it'll be entertaining. Yeah, to me, exactly. No one else. <laughs> turns out, <laughs> but to me, me, it was like yeah. But then I, you know, and so and then um, while I had Dan Huff as a partner in high school, guitar player and friend, you know, who would push me to be a better guitar player, probably when I started writing with Wayne Kirkpatrick. Um, in the early '90s is when the songwriting thing—it was like reaching over and flipping a switch. Yeah. At the point where I was writing with him, and we both agreed at some point that we raised the bar for each other. Sure. He didn't need to raise it much higher than where he was. I did. <laughs> I did. And from that moment on, I feel like I had a grasp on songwriting. At on some level, yeah. I understand this. Absolutely. And. Uh, and and got it, if you will, you know, a little more. Does the writer Gordon Kennedy, the guitar player Gordon Kennedy, and the producer Gordon Kennedy, do they influence each other? Do they make you better at one or the other? Or can you think or do you just like if you're just writing a song? You've you got a have, good that's a good question. And you you know what? You it's the answer is yes. Because obviously well, but I mean it can be if you know three chords, you can write oh, sure, three thousand sure. songs. Yeah. Um, sometimes being able to go many, many, many different directions can hinder your uh, what you accomplish too, because you can be too scattered to focus on yeah. the, the main thing. But I think that it helps um, ultimately. I mean, I think if you think of it, just taking a song like "Change the World," for example, there's a knowledge of chords and the fretboard that helps with a song like that. Absolutely, that wouldn't. Occur. So you probably don't hear a lot of people cover that song correctly. To, yeah, correctly or <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, and being a a songwriter, I say the great thing about being able to write songs is that it, for me it enables me at some point ultimately to do everything else I know how to do. That's great. Yeah. So by virtue of the fact that you write a song and then you make a demo of it, and at some point maybe Winona Judd says. Honey, can you come sing those same background vocal parts on the record? You yeah. know, and or come play on the record. Or Skaggs says, "Can you come produce, play, and sing?" And and same thing with Frampton. We wrote together first before he would say, "Come play on on stage at the Ryman with me. Come tour with me." Yeah, a couple of years later, and I've done two full tours with him. And then we do these acoustic tours these days. Which are but awesome. it all came from being a songwriter first. Yeah. But then, but knowing how to play the guitar, you know it causes him to want to write with me more or take me out on the road and play alongside him for these acoustic tours, which is a scary thing, sitting there next to him, you know, playing the guitar. And because he could have a million people right. do better at the guitar thing that I'm doing, but he 
I think that, and he's told me this, I'm there because of the whole ball of wax that you just mentioned. You know, yeah. it's more of a, uh, I don't want to say, well, triple threat kind of yeah, thing or absolutely. whatever. Sometimes that's what somebody's looking for is somebody that can, well, he can sit down and play the songs with me live, but he can write them with me too. Yeah. So, yeah, they all support each other. Yeah, uh, Amy is a photographer, and we were doing this engagement shoot with this couple, and she asked me to come along. And the guy, they just moved to town, yeah. and uh, he said he loves writer's nights. He said, there's nothing like hearing a hit song played and sang by the guy that wrote it, which is like yeah. you in Frampton, you're saying he could get another guitar player, but right. you were there writing it with him, and you're going to play it different than, like, if you just handed me a record and said, learn these songs, yeah. I'm not going to play it the same way you are. And, but, you know, in a moment in the show's... Um, you know, we play all his old hits, Humble Pie, the whole thing, you know. and But we also do Change the World at some point. And yeah. for, for three and a half minutes in this two-hour, 20-minute show, people get to see him be my band. And it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. So that ends up being a moment uh, during the show in and of itself. Just, you know, it's some it's a shifting of the gears at one <laughs> yeah. point, but they also watch him <laughs> just be the guitar <laughs> yeah. player. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know. So, uh, yeah, but they all kind of scratch each other's back a little bit. Yeah. There. Dude, I've watched you guys do that on YouTube a hundred times, and the smile on his face when he takes a solo in that song. He's he's like a little kid. Oh, man. And he so much enjoys what he's doing, and yeah. it's apparent, and it's not an act. Right. You're yeah, right. I heard Merle Haggard say if he could do it all over again, he thinks he would have just been a guitar player in somebody else's band. Really? And I, I wonder sometimes, like a guy like, Peter Frampton, who's just, I mean, he's so well, great at everything, but still. Like, well, he, he tells the story when we do these shows about David Bowie. That's what I was just going to yeah, say. I mean, he, yeah. he's the guy that sort of brought Peter out of the funk that his career had been going direction-wise because of the image. And you know, Sergeant Peppers. You know, somebody tries to hang an iconic image yeah. or, or, peddle you, or you know, push you as an image rather than what you're, the essence of what you really are. And then David Bowie was the guy that took him around and made sure people were aware of what he really is yeah. and sort of turned him around, you know, turned his image around. Hmm. Now, you have a couple of cool guitars. Do you want to talk about some of them? I, I would love to talk about them. You, are you and me talking about guitars? Are you kidding? <laughs> this won't be the first time. <laughs> well, not. Well, I mean, I think you're probably speaking uh, at the top of the heap there would be my father's 1961 Gibson ES-335, electric Spanish. Is that what that That's what for? that stands I've for. I've never yeah. known that. Um, it's a semi-hollow guitar that was uh, new in 61, had a Bigsby tremolo on it, cherry red. Dad went down to Hughley's Music in Nashville, and, and he, he tells me that he wanted to buy it on payments, and the guy who was running the store wasn't comfortable with musicians <laughs> having that kind yeah. of a. But for some reason, or other let him do it, and so he bought that guitar. Uh, he would end up soon thereafter taking it to a guy named Dean Porter, or maybe Dean Porter approached him. I'm not sure, but Dean had uh, modified my dad's 335 and Grady Martin's Gibson. Um, with some, he took the Bigsby's off of those two guitars and modified them with like a, a palm lever to raise a B string, a, a whole step, a little chrome piece 
which I showed you is yeah. the drain stop in a sink <laughs> or a bathtub that you set your elbow on. And when that's pressed down, it ra- it lowers the e- high E string down a whole step. So it lowers that. Grady's had a, a third lever for the G. I'm not sure the travel, which way huh. and how far. But so dad, you know, has this guitar that he's using on the majority. It was his favorite guitar to use on sessions. And it's it ends up being on Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman uh, Elvis Presley, Good Luck Charm, Crazy. Stand By Your Man, Bob Dylan, Blonde on Blonde double album, Ringo's second solo record, Bukusa Blues, that album he did in Nashville. Uh, just a slew of countless you know, recording sessions with it. Gibson is actually doing a replica of it at the custom shop here in Nashville. I think they're going to unveil it in June, the end of this month, uh, to dealers and and uh, have invited us to come oh, that's cool. to participate in, you know, when they show the guitar for the first time. They're going to do 50 out of the Nashville wow. Custom Shop. That is, you know, it's all, it also has resided in the Musicians Hall of Fame right. for out of the last um, 10 years. It's been down there for a few to four of those years behind glass because my father got inducted along with six other people, all known as the A-Team players. Sure. In 2007, they went into the museum, so it immediately went into the museum for two and a half or so years. I remember it was like having an appendage cut off for me oh, man. to surrender the guitar, because I'd been playing it on session since about 1988 or so. Um, it was either that and a Telecaster that I would use on 90% of everything I've done since the late 80s, right? Did you ever find yourself looking for it here at the house and oh, can't I, find well, it? Well, I mean, I, no, I actually went out and tried to find substitutes for oh, did you? that. Yeah, I thought I'll go out and f- I got a half because I was used to having a 335 and I yeah. went and bought a 59 335 and, and you know, it was it was cool. Didn't have the lever, which I would use that B yeah. vendor of. If you listen to the Jewel album that I played on, I used it heavily on on, on a couple of songs, but... Um, and Dan Huff would always ask me to use it. And I'd be looking across the room at Paul Franklin, and he's <laughs> wanting me to play the B-Bender, and there's the greatest steel, steel player. player ever. And I would apologize to Paul <laughs> yeah. in advance and play what Dan wanted me to do. But, but anyway, so I was without that guitar all of a sudden uh, for a few years. And then long about two, early 2010, Joe Chambers, who started the museum, mm-hmm. Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum, he said, well, we're going to lose the building because they're going to they're forcing everybody out to build the new convention center downtown. We've got to find a new location. And in the interim, do you want to have me store the, the your dad's Dobro, which is the Harper Valley PTA Dobro? Wow. Um, he, you want me to store that in the 335, or do you want to come get him? I'm coming I'm to get him. Right I'm coming to get him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I went down there and picked up those two guitars to bring home. And I remember when I arrived back to my studio with, 335 I plugged it in I think I stood in one spot and played it for about two hours without Mm. moving just I'm so thankful to have this guitar back in my hands and and then of course every guitar that Joe stored yeah went into the flood of 2010 May of 2010 so we dodged a major bullet there um Mm. Even lost uh, one of Jimi Hendrix's strats and all sorts I mean, of just yeah, amazing yeah. pieces of history. Frampton's Epiphone Texan that he wrote, Baby, I Love Your Way, oh, Show Me the Way in the same day. That went underwater, but it survived. It, it's been 
restored or whatever, yeah. and it sounds amazing. Great. Yeah, it sounds amazing. But I, who knows if Dad's Dobro I probably wouldn't have fared yeah. as well. Anyway, so I got got that. And I still have it with me now because Gibson is doing the replica. So anytime they need to, can we look at the whatever part of that guitar again? Can you bring it down? I want it handy, and also just want it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other guitar that I've showed you that's pretty cool is. Uh, the 1959 Les Paul Standard, formerly owned by John Sebastian and used on all the Love and Spoonful records. So do you believe in magic? <laughs> Summer in the City, Daydream, Nashville Cats, all those killer songs from yeah. the Love and Spoonful. Um, I have that guitar here now. And Bart, I think you know this, that I'm telling you the truth. That is the guitar that everything else has to be plugged in oh, and measured against. That's the grail. And I've had I played it against four others of the same ilk when I bought it. I've had um, people bring around their guitars um, to just compare or yeah. have me bring this one over to their place. I have one guy that's got a, uh, a 1960. He wanted to AB him. He played his first and then he said, okay, let me see yours. He played it for five seconds and then just looked at me and said, oh, <laughs> so those kinds of reviews are always make you smile. I had Joe Walsh's uh, 59 in here a couple of years ago that was on Rocky Mountain Way, and I loved that guitar. Yeah. When I plugged it in and played it, I went, okay, oh. okay, yeah, this is okay. This is probably one of the best I've ever played. And I thought, yeah. wait a minute, is it better than the – and I plugged the Sebastian guitar in and went, no, I still like this one the best. Yeah. So it's just something special about it, you know, Um and I enjoy handing it to you and other guitar players just to go check this out and watch the fireworks. You know? Yeah. That's, I almost had Amy convinced because I found one. I don't think it was completely original because the money wasn't where it should have been. Yeah. But I told her, I said, this is what they're going for. Like Joe Don Rooney had just bought one. Mm. And I said, if we can buy this guitar couple years from now we can sell it and make some pretty good money yeah. i said i don't i said don't look at me like i have six heads but just think yeah. about that for a couple of days yeah and she came back to me a couple of days later and said i've thought about it and i was just kind of mm-hmm. suppressing a mm-hmm. smile like here we're going we're going yeah and she said you could never sell that guitar if we got uh, it. And I went, ah. well but you know what i'll but tell you something right. that you might and she might you might get mad when i tell you this <laughs> when i bought it and brought it home my wife looked at it, and she kind of had this look on her face like she wasn't thrilled. I said, what's wrong? She said, I just thought it would be more beautiful. Mm. And I, I said, trust me, it is. It is. <laughs> and then, of course, within some <laughs> couple of years, she would walk into the studio time and time ago and listen to what I was working on and playing back something. And she'd go, is that that guitar? I'd say, yeah. She goes, I thought it was. Mm-hmm. She said, that's my favorite guitar that you have. And then just a few years, a couple of years ago, our kids are grown, they're out of the house, and we're thinking, should we downsize now, you know? So we could either, A, we could downsize, or B, we're the sale of one guitar away from owning this house. Yeah. She said, you can never sell that guitar. You can't sell that guitar. Yeah. She was telling me she didn't want me to right. sell it. So it, it, there was a big swing in thought process there over the years. Yeah, my wife, uh, we had to do our wills a couple years ago, and, and two of my guitars, she's making hmm. making sure that she gets them in the will. Oh, well, see? So, they see. mean something. Well, man, just real quick, um, well, not real quick, but 
the the music business has changed so much. I mean, do you still write every day? Do you write once a week? Do you write as need? Do you write as projects? More of a pop more up? of an as need mm-hmm. or as it hits me kind of thing. Um, there's to me long time ago the reason any reason to go downtown to what used to be Music Row and write yeah. songs to pitch sort of is it's kind of gone. It's kind of gone and 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 um, don't care that much about it, but. Like for example, I still will write with Peter. Yeah. Um, if Skaggs was going to do a project right now and needed songs, I would either write or try to go through my stuff. Just because I care about certain people, Bonnie Raitt, for sure. example, just sent her a song. Got the most wonderful email back about how that's being played more than anything else on mm. her uh, on her radar right now. She's going to do a project at some point in the near future and. I was just thrilled to hear that she was digging this song. But so I mean people like that if if it did nothing but cause them to keep making music, it would be worth it. Yeah. Um the idea that I'm going to make a living as a songwriter, I just I don't think I would trust that anymore. Um but again, if I can go back to where I started in this conversation about the calling. Yeah. I mean, I in fact my prayer is this, if I've actually prayed two things. I want to make enough money so that I don't have to retire. <laughs> and then the That's other, great. and the other part of the prayer is, if you want me to keep doing this, provide. Yeah. And so, so far, so good. Yeah. Um, I've been very blessed and very fortunate that uh, we have sustained ourselves um, with music. And but that's it makes it easy for me to when St. Jude's, St. Luke's, Vanderbilt Hospital. Uh, rally for the cure. These different things that are always tapping me on the shoulder. Can I come to Seattle and do something for St. Jude's, for example, a month or so ago? I can go and answer the bell because yeah. I'm for some reason or another, and I don't. I mean, who knows as a songwriter if you're getting paid what you're supposed to get paid? Yeah. How do you? How would you ever know? How would you ever know if that's off? Or, or on. I hope know? people are, are as honest as sure. we are. Because it's, it's a, yeah, it's almost like an honor system of yeah. sorts. And, uh, but I mean, all I can, but again, my prayer is what I just said it was. And so far, so good. Yeah. So I will keep answering, you know, the call. Hmm, that's good. Well, can we do my. Ten questions, real quick. Yeah, is this going right. to be funny? This, this is going to be. I wouldn't say it's funny. All right, no one uses. This is like rapid funny? fire kind this of. This is just first thing that comes to mind. Head. Okay, top of your head. All right, hands on buzzers. What's your favorite book? Well, besides the Holy Scriptures, yes, it would be Unbroken. Um, Laura Hildenbrand that wrote Sea Biscuit. Okay, she did the story about Louis Zamperini. Oh, okay. Incredible, oh, okay. true story. I've Just trust movie. me. That's yeah. that's one of the that's the best book I ever read. Yeah, once. The movie is yeah, also fantastic. What's your favorite food? Something my mom taught me how to make, and and she's been gone since ninety one, but I still make it, and it's my kids' favorite meal. They want it when they come home, and it's chicken fried steak, nice. <laughs> and then either rice or mashed potatoes with milk gravy. <laughs> That'd be my last meal if I were. Yep, if you could if, plan it. Yeah, if I could do it. Yeah, six o'clock. Get yeah. I'm out of here. What's your favorite quote? 
Jimmy Gentry, Coach Jimmy Gentry, Gentry's Farm, Highway 96, World War II vet. He's 92 now. We share the same day as our birthday. He was among the troops that liberated Dachau concentration mm. camp, yep. came home from the war, and coached football in Williamson County 66 years before physically just couldn't do it anymore. Um, he has a thing that he says that sort of has to do with that calling thing that I've mentioned a couple of times, but he says it like this. He says, know where you belong, work hard, and when something needs to be done, God will know where to find you. <laughs> and that just means to me, know what your gifts are. And, yep. and uh, you don't have to be moved very far. If somebody needs somebody to come sing at this little benefit or whatever it is, I could be ready in 20 minutes yeah. for that. I'm prepared for it. You know? Right. If somebody needs brain surgery, I, if they call me, it's going to be a longer path <laughs> being the person to answer that. But, I mean, I know where I belong, So, and he says it that way. I pass Gentry's Farm twice every day. Yeah, you should stop. Oh, we have – yeah, I, yeah. I do, I do. What is your, what's your favorite memory? I mean, it could be song cut, watching Dad's session, kids being born, walking down the aisle, any I – mean, what do you think your favorite memory is? And I know you got a shoebox full of them, but – Well, of course, and I, I don't I – that would take me a while to think I know, that's, that's probably – I should probably cross that off the list. Well, I mean, that's one that you, you <laughs> have to give me some time to think. But, I mean, I remember my first childhood memory, but it's not – wouldn't be my favorite um, – I mean, I just remember being on what turned out when I asked about it later. It's my grand great grandfather's farm, and chickens running around and eating watermelon at a picnic table. Mm. I mean, that was the first thing that I recollect as a kid. Um, I remember things like with my hands propped up on the back on the front seat from the back seat of the car before yep. we had to wear seat belts. You know, and Dad telling Bench me seat in the front. Dad saying, "Guess who I'm playing for tonight? Who? The King." Who's the king, Elvis, right. you know? I mean, I remember things like that. Yeah. Um, sheesh. I mean, I, I I want to remember in my mind things that my mom said and the way she said them because she's gone, you know? And I actually hmm. kept a couple of uh, little micro cassettes back when our oh, yeah. phone machines had those things. I kept them with her voice on it. Hmm. Uh, shoot, when my kids were born, you know, though that moment – how you, there's nothing that can prepare you for that yeah. and or to make yeah there's nothing can prepare you for the feeling as they're coming into this world that way and there's nothing that can prepare you for what to do afterwards right. either you know yeah. just uh that's pretty uh, that's a you can't explain it never had joy and fear try to take over my head at the same time right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so when my daughter was born first it was just pure joy. And I had grown up with me and two brothers, and right. my wife was her and two sisters. Oh, wow. So we had the girl, and I'm like, this is unbelievable. This is so great. What a blessing. And then when my son was born, that's when I teared up because I thought, oh, the son, I know what's going to happen. And right. so it, that was more scary, scary <laughs> yeah. to me for some reason or another. It's like, I know this path. Yeah. You know? So anyway, that was just kind of. Uh, I don't know. There's plenty of those kinds of things, you know, um, the, yeah. the, the ones that are vivid or when I met my wife, you know, she came to a show, she was sitting on the front row. Mm. I can still see that moment. I'm wearing an underdog T-shirt on stage, you know, just stuff like that. Yeah. And you go, I mean, had it not been for that, you know, um, my, you know, my life wouldn't be near as fulfilling, mm. I would say, 
by any stretch if that moment hadn't happened, you know. But I can tie that moment to my fifth and sixth fifth and sixth grade football coach. If he weren't if he weren't my coach, I would not have been in South Bend, Indiana, meeting this girl. You know, it's it's weird because yeah. I look at it all as being these dominoes that stand Absolutely. over your shoulder. Yeah. Each one is a memory. Each one has a name of a person or a place or an event or something that happened. If you pull one out and change it, everything after it changes, you know. So they're all critical. But you have to give me some time to think about the Hmm. favorite memory, you know. Not sure. What's your favorite to do? And, again, this goes kind of back to our former, but write a song, play on a song, or produce a song. I know they're different and connected at the same time. Um. Yeah, I, like I said, the thing about writing a song is it will cause the others to happen. Yeah. So I would say more often than not, that's the fulfilling part, you know. Um, but I've played on other people's records, too, that I, I wouldn't want to change sure. having had the opportunity to do that, you know. It's... It's all it's all great to just be a part of of just like this little if this little mark on the on the world or yeah. something or in time, you know. It's a capturing a, a a moment in time that's captured forever. Really, when you think about that's it, that's the thing about all of those things. Is like if you just if you just think about writing a song, like okay, I, I come to your house, get a cup of coffee, sit down. You have any ideas? Write a song at three o'clock. This song is done. Well, that song wasn't there at nope. ten o'clock this morning. No, nope. and it's just pulling something out of a hat, which yep. still just amazes me. I know it's. I mean, that to me is. It's a rare thing to get to experience yeah. that, and then to have it be something that is playing twenty-two years oh, later or something. Yeah. You know? and then it's going to be maybe playing after we're gone. Yeah. Or something, you know, and for our kids and their kids to be able to go back and say, listen to this, you know. Yeah. It's like walking into a music, you know, an art museum or something and being able to look at that in the frame. Yeah. And go, that was done in the 1700s or whatever, you know. Oh, yeah. So we're making these little niches on, on hmm. in history that people can go back and listen to. That's cool. Absolutely. What's the favorite song you wrote? Maybe not. The biggest made you the most money, but what's what's your favorite? Might be something nobody's heard but you. Uh, I think the Mosaic album that that I produced with Ricky Skaggs is so um. There's so much of me. Yeah, it's almost like a a little confession. And a little prayer, hmm. all going on at the same time on this record. Um, the song "Instead," probably from that record, is the most powerful one to me. And the reason I separate it from the other ones on the record is simply this: I think, and you will uh, agree that sometimes as a songwriter, you feel like you're really just kind of the conduit. Hmm. Um, the, the song comes from somewhere, yeah. you know, straight ahead, straight above our heads, down into you and then out from out from you out to an audience a listener one one listener millions of listeners whatever so we're that vessel at times of the song is meant to come through us and out and that's the case for that record except for the song instead because when i listen Hmm. to that particular one 
it came from somewhere else, someone else, and I know who. But when it came into me, it got stuck right here. And I realize even to this day when I'm listening to it that that song came to me because I was supposed to be the listener <sighs> of that song. I'm supposed to hear that song. And it was it was for me to hear to that. Hear. Yeah. To hear that as much as it was for me to make to do it and you hear it. It was for me to hear that song. And I think about, you know, <sighs> certain writers of the books in the Bible that those things they're writing came from somewhere else <laughs> and from someone else, you know, and you gotta you gotta think about the fact that they're hearing it. Yeah. You know, they're hearing it too. So um, that anyway, I would point to maybe that one song. And, mm. you know, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's great. Yeah, that's special. Yeah, in the Bible, I have to believe some of those prophets writing stuff down, the phrase, are you sure you want me to write this down, didn't uh, pop up more often. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is there a song you wish you would have written? Yes. <laughs> Plenty. Um, one thing that I uh, there's there is a song that that Sting wrote called hmm. "If I Ever Lose My Faith in You." Oh yeah, I think that's the best gospel song I've ever heard in my life. And he doesn't even know it. No, no, and he didn't mean it that way. Uh-uh. But it's the best gospel song I've ever heard yep. in my life. Um, Tom Petty's "Southern Accent" would be another. Another song when I listen to, and I just go, that may be the greatest country song I've ever heard in my yeah. life. You know, um, lots of great songs. Obviously, there are lots of great songs. I know um, I got a brand new girlfriend would be one <laughs> 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 because it makes us do that. You know what I mean? It's just, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, you know, obviously you would. Oh, I wish I had written that or. Whatever, but the one that made me think I really wish I had written that was if I ever lose my faith. In you. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, man, thank you so much. Are we done? We're done. We can't be done. Well, I mean, I could well, think of well, something. Just let me know when we do part two. <laughs> right. Thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure, Bart. Gordon, it's been such a blast getting to know you and be a friend of yours, and and I just I appreciate you. Well, man. we're not finished. We're well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, we're not. We got till like yeah. four o'clock. That's right. Thanks. Thanks, Bart. Thank Gordon. You. Bye-bye.